0: Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science Across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Stu and I'm here to bring you half an hour of science with my colleague, Chris. Hey, Stu. Uh, Chris, what have you got for us this week?
1: Well, Stu, I... I look. I'm very torn. I'm very torn with my story this week. It was a story that I was very reluctant to cover, but I just can't help myself.
0: Um, uh, is it? Is it? Is it COVID-related? It I is. Ask? Co-
1: of course, it's COVID-related. Everything. Everything is COVID. <laughs> now, not everything. Oh, there's been some interesting physics stuff happening that I hope to cover in coming weeks. More to come on that. But no, this one is about uh, something that I'm sure everyone has seen in the news, which is some of the reports of blood clots after the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. Um, This is something that's been causing a bit of concern, but it's not clear exactly whether it's a real thing or not. Um, So yeah, look, I thought, There's a lot of information going around, Um, a lot of it is very technical, so I thought I would just explain some of the points and give an idea of where we're at at the moment. But with some major, major, major disclaimers. Um, One of course is that this is, as I said, a developing story. There is a lot happening with this. Um, I mean, not dramatically things happening, but there is, you know, the the knowledge about this thing is developing. So um, I've done my best to summarise what's going on as far as I can find, but the situation is changing. The other one, of course, is that this, whatever the situation is, and like I said, it's, it's totally not definite there's something going on here, but it's clearly much, the vaccine is much, much, much safer than COVID-19. And I really want to stress that um, vaccination is going to be hugely important to get us out of this pandemic. Um, You know, we're seeing a lot going on at the moment. Obviously, there's a lot of concern about the way that the the vaccine rollout is happening. Um, But there's also now, you know, you've seen the fears of variants popping up around the world. And it really is, it does feel like it's a bit of a race against time to get as much of the population vaccinated as possible to um to stamp down this this virus uh before it mutates and gets harder to control so yeah vaccination is extremely important and this story does not change that at all as far as i can see
0: yeah i've i've been keeping an eye on this story as well so there's a bit of sensationalism there as well thrown Mm. into the mix and i think it'll be really interesting to hear uh your thoughts and tease out some of what's actually going on there my story this week is actually about health and global health as well. But I'm actually looking at um, a, a completely different angle. It is, in fact, the International Year of Fruit and Vegetables, the, the United Nations and the FAO who's behind it. But I, I just thought I would talk about a little bit about um, why science can help with fruit and veg and why is the United Nations even having an International Year of fruit and vegetables
1: I suspect there's not going to be controversial science in this story the idea that fruit and vegetables are good for you is not going to be the most controversial science we have ever covered on this this show
0: no look but I I thought I'd leave the controversy to you this week Chris (laughs) so I went I I played it safe um, and you you can hit the home run on that one this week so blood clots and fruit and veg stay tuned for those later in the show (laughs)
1: Okay, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. As I said, I am talking about some of the recent reports about blood cots that may or may not be associated with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine for COVID-19. Um, as I said in the introduction, disclaimers that this story is developing, so situation can change from what you're hearing now, um, and that, uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to conclude that it is still better to have the vaccine than to have COVID-19. But... Just to take a step back um so so chris
0: at this point how many va- there's a, new, a number of vaccines that are being rolled out in different places across the world but the astrazeneca seems to be the one that most people are using is that would that be right uh
1: that's a that's an interesting question in itself um astrazeneca is one of the most widely used ones and it's controversial for a number of reasons um Obviously, in Australia, it's the one that uh, the Australian government initially put its its money behind, um, got deals to manufacture it locally. Um, it was not the first one approved in Australia. There's a vaccine from Pfizer, I think, was the first one approved. Um, and so that one's being used a lot. There's another one from Moderna you might have heard of. There is a Russian one, Sputnik Five, I think they're calling it. There's a few around the world. Um, AstraZeneca, though... I guess it is, it's obviously very important for Australia. It's um, it's one of the things that makes it unusual and makes it important is that it is done slightly differently to the other um, vaccines. Some of these other ones like the Pfizer are mRNA vaccines, which I think you've covered previously, how those work. Um, this one is more traditional kind of virus vector um, vaccine. And it, cares. so it's, it's kind of easier to produce in that sense. Um, it's also cheaper than the other vaccines, not least of which because AstraZeneca has promised to produce it um, without profit, so not profit from this vaccine for the duration of the pandemic. And the possible reason for that is because they're not traditionally a vaccine manufacturer. They normally make cancer drugs, but you know they saw an opportunity to jump on board, um, either do some good or be seen to be doing some good if you want to be cynical about the PR efforts of it. But, you know, they've jumped in as um, essentially a way to, to uh, yeah, produce these vaccines as cheaply as possible. So it is um, hugely important in the developing world. Um, and there are a lot of political kind of considerations around the world with this particular vaccine. So, yeah, it's a very important one um, for the world, not just for Australia. But that all being said, yeah, so there are these reports that started coming out and um, like I said, I'm going to digress slightly. When I first started hearing them, this is about the time that the New South Wales floods were happening and there were a few similarities in in what was happening here. So um, bear with me on this. I don't know if you remember, that, like one of the things that was in the news about the, the Sydney flooding was when they said that there was a one in a hundred year event and it's a kind of thing that stands out because if you think we seem to be having a lot of one in a hundred hundred year events lately in terms of weather.
0: Yeah, we've got you know, there's been there's been fires, there's been floods, there's been storms. Yeah, it does seem to be, you know, this this is this is the time for it apparently.
1: Yeah, well, one of these things that can happen here is just simply pure statistics. So you've got something is kind of happens every hundred years. What that actually means by that is that there's a 1% chance of it happening every year. So over 100 years, you don't have a 100% chance that'll happen. You actually statistically have a 63% chance it'll happen in 100 years. But it also multiplies out. So if you have, for instance, 100 different locations, a very small estimate for the number of locations in Australia, if you have 100 different locations, each with their own weather records, then you have a 63% chance that in a given year you will get a 100-year event somewhere. So right. it's kind of no surprise we see a lot of them because there are just so many possibilities to have one in 100 year events. So each one itself is unlikely, but you're going to get them happening all the time.
0: So it's kind of, it's kind of a statistical anomaly because we're looking at a huge number of places yeah. and a huge number of possible events
1: totally totally yeah but there's, you know, there's some other complications here of course i mean one is that we have limited data on which to base this on i mean we have barely 100 years of data so how can we say something is a 1 in 100 year event and then of course there is the elephant in the room of climate change because we do expect there to be an increase in the frequency of high rainfall events so there are there is possibly an underlying cause that is making these things more frequent it's just hard to sometimes to to peel off the statistics from the underlying mechanisms that's going on. And this is what we're seeing with these um these vaccine complications. So when these blood clots were first reported from this vaccine, this is the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, otherwise known as CH80OX1-S. Um, catchy. Catchy. So a lot of people sensibly thought that this just looked like a statistical anomaly because millions of people had been vaccinated. And if you monitor every possible complication that you could get, you're obviously gonna get rare events Popping up by chance, so it's very hard then to extract what is the true cause and effect, because you know some of these clots had seen before in the clinical trials for this vaccine. Um, out of twenty-four thousand people, four people who were given the vaccine had these kind of clots. However, eight people in the placebo group also got them. So. That's the kind of thing that you look at that and you go, well, that just seems to be pure chance. You can't say there that the vaccine caused that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a really good demonstration of why you have a control group.
1: Yeah. So that was that was kind of a starting point a few weeks ago. It, started, it looked like coincidence. But then people dug a bit deeper because most of the clots weren't just the typical kind of con- more common deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolisms, which are very serious conditions, let's be honest but they are relatively common. But they said there was a much rarer condition called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. Sounds awful. Uh, It is, it look, it is pretty awful. Um, It's, I don't expect people to know what that means. So I might have to explain that. Um, The cerebral venous sinuses are channels kind of within the brain. They're sort of formed out of the lining of the brain. Um, and the veins from the brain, the brain veins, empty into these channels called sinuses. So they're not technically veins themselves. They're just these kind of repositories where the veins empty into. But then they themselves drain into the jugular vein and return the blood to the, the main um, circulatory system of the body. So, so pretty important, though. They're pretty important. They're basically, so they're, they're not supplying blood to the brain. They're removing blood and cerebral spinal fluid and other kind of waste products from the brain. Brain. Uh, thrombosis in that name is just uh, another fancy word for clot. So cerebral venous sinus thrombosis is when a clot blocks the venous sinuses and what it does it causes fluid to build up which then leads to headaches uh, Could often cause seizures and sometimes you get stroke symptoms as other stroke symptoms as well. So it's a pretty weird condition, pretty, pretty rare. You get around a few per million every year. So again with the number of people vaccinated it was very hard to separate it from the noise. But the condition got a bit weirder because many of the patients who had this condition also had something called thrombocytopenia. Again, I don't expect you to know what that is, but thrombocytopenia is a shortage of platelets. Okay. So do you know what platelets? So they've got a low, a
0: low, a low, a low platelet count.
1: Yeah. So do you know what general? platelets are, Stu? Can you tell us what the platelets are?
0: Well, platelets are the uh, the the substance in the blood which. Um, if you cut yourself, it will cause a scab to form. Um, and obviously also the basis of forming clots, is that yeah. right?
1: Yeah, so they clump yeah. to form clots. So normally yeah. if you have more platelets, the more likely you are to, to clot. So having a lot of clots with low platelets is rather odd. Um, but this had been seen, something similar had been seen before. There is a blood thinning drug called heparin. Um, and what it does, it binds to certain platelets, proteins in the platelets, and sometimes people's immune system can respond to that kind of combination of the heparin with the protein, and it produces antibodies in response, which can then lead to clotting. So okay. you can, that was, that had been seen before, is a condition where you can get clotting with low platelet counts. Um, and some of the patients that had these, um, these weird blood clots, they examined them and some of them had those same antibodies, even though they hadn't been taking heparin. So yeah, it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a clue to what could be going on because it gives you a mechanism that could be going on there. The scientists identified it calls it vaccine-induced prothrombotic immune thrombocytopenia. Uh, research, of course, is still ongoing because we've got only small numbers on this. Uh, we have limited data, a lot more research needs to be done. So, now, I, guess,
0: I guess the question that, that arises then is that if something is happening, can, can that be treated?
1: Well, it can be treated. There is um, the so, the, as the situation is developing, um, people are monitoring and possibly what's going on. The Australian government has been putting out updates and advice um, to the general public, but also to health professionals. Essentially, there is there are ways to there are ways to treat it. Um, there are things that you wouldn't normally do when people have blood clots. And one of the things that when people have blood clots is you might say give them heparin to thin the blood. You don't do that in this case because heparin could be part of the problem. Um, yep. but yeah, there is treatment that can be done for it. Once you find out what something is, um, there is, yeah, there is certainly treatment that can be done and certainly, but one of the main things is I guess now advise people to monitor for the occurrence of this condition in people. But yeah, so there's a, look, there's a, Basically, there's a possible mechanism. There's also some other reason to think that could be plausible because there has been observed in um, case studies published last year, possible links between COVID-19 and cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. So you know that COVID can cause it, it's not unreasonable that a vaccine for COVID could have similar effect. Um, in fact, cardiovascular effects of COVID-19 aren't really very rare. Uh, there's about a 7.4 incidence of clotting conditions from um, people with COVID-19 infections. So, yeah, there's a kind of a plausibility there, but also kind of highlights the main point here. So, you know, that the COVID-19 itself is much more dangerous than this vaccine. It causes the same condition, and it is, but in much higher numbers. So you know, of course, people are going to be concerned the idea that the vaccine could be causing clots. But even if it does, and again, it's not proven, you're looking at a rate of one or two per million incidents. Um, So far, there has been one possible case that's being investigated within Australia. Out of 400,000 people vaccinated, there's one possible case that's being investigated. So, yeah, it's concerning, but it is uh, very low numbers compared to COVID-19 itself. Um, So, Look, it's something that we really have to we really have to watch. Um, you know, you asked about the other vaccines. I think the response in some countries has been different, where people, where countries that have had multiple vaccines on the go, they've kind of said, "Oh, well, maybe we will not give the AstraZeneca vaccine to everyone, just to the people who most needed the most, and we'll use, say, the Pfizer vaccine for other people." Um, Places like Australia don't necessarily have the ability to do that, but then again, we're monitoring it for safety, and we're not seeing a huge problem with it. You know, there aren't really any confirmed um, serious complications with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Just this one that's being investigated. So, um, yeah, it is something that we're still sticking with. Australia is still sticking with it. Um, As an individual trying to decide what to do, you know, you're literally looking at about a one in a million chance of of something happening, even if it is true. Um, but you're looking at much more likely and much worse effects from COVID-19 if you, if you don't get vaccinated. So it certainly does not change the position of the importance of vaccination. You're travelling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in Science.
0: Now, as Chris was talking about earlier, last year was memorable for one big obvious thing. uh, The ongoing global pandemic. Though, at least for now, we seem to have it under some level of control in Australia. I think we're, we're doing all right at the moment compared to other places at least. Um, but obviously the news was full of stories about medical science in particular and research into how the coronavirus spreads and the race for a vaccine, which was successful on multiple fronts in that uh, endeavor. But other parts of science probably took a bit of a back seat, even though, uh, and even though we did mention on the show a few times, um, the International Year of Plant Health probably kind of slipped by without much attention, uh, and these types of annual events don't get extensions. So, mm-hmm. International Year of Plant Health is done, and this year the United Nation- Nations General Assembly has named twenty twenty one the International Year of Fruits and Vegetables. Among so they don't-
1: they don't get a year each. It's fruits and vegetables together.
0: Yeah, and they've lumped in fruits and vegetables together. Nuts don't even get a look in here. It's just, oh. yeah, you know, it's... Um, but there's, there's other things. Uh, it's, it's, I think if they're fresh, they're counted as vegetables. If they're dried, mm-hmm. they're probably uh, a commodity of a different type. Um, but this is, this is really quite a good follow-on from the International Year of Plant Health. Uh, though, as obviously fruit and vegetables are parts of plants and they rely on our ability to grow healthy plants to have a regular supply of fruit and vegetables. And the driver behind the idea is the, the FAO, which is the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. And uh, the year itself falls into a larger program, which is the United Nations Decade of Action on Nutrition which is currently running and will run until 2025. So it's all these interlocking concepts which are trying to solve the problem of people having enough food and people eating properly. Um, Now, in agricultural terms, fruit and vegetables make up only a tiny fraction of food production. Um, That's in Australia and in general around the world. So in Australia, out of 427 million hectares used for agricultural production only 440,000 hectares are used for growing horticultural products which is fruit wow. and veg
1: is this because like a lot of the land of agriculture is just large cattle plantations in perhaps in more arid areas of australia
0: uh 100% if you look at a map of australia and 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 what kind of agriculture is being uh, being practiced? A lot of it is just huge tracts of land with cattle grazing on on whatever vegetation is there. So something what you, some, something like three quarters of the of the agricultural land, which is classified as agricultural, is actually just grazing land.
1: And a, with your calculation, are you also counting uh, things like wheat and sugarcane and those sort of crops?
0: no because we we classify them as well they're, they're really agricultural commodities so they they fall into a into a different category wheat is for example dryland agriculture cropping which is a different category which is quite a you know it's a big contributor to um, to um, uh, the actual output of of agricultural products it's about eight percent of the value of Australian agriculture is wheat by itself. Wow. Um,
1: so we're not counting we're not counting wheat, we're not counting sheep, we're not counting cattle, we're not counting sugarcane, we're not counting macadamia nut plantations, no basically, yeah,
0: actually macadamias would come into it because they are the fruit and nuts get lumped in together as okay. far as the agricultural stats, but um as far as the FAO obviously they're they're a different enough thing um, but yeah, so about one uh, sorry, about zero point one percent of land used for horticulture out of all of the agricultural land, but combined fruit and veg and nuts make up about a fifth of the value of agriculture in Australia. So it's a much higher value Mm. cropping system. The downside or part of the reason that it's so high value is that it has a lot more inputs. Um, you know if if, you, if you're growing wheat you basically plough the field you plant your wheat the wheat grows you harvest the wheat you sell the wheat there's a bit more to it than that but with, with fruit and veg there's a lot of different phases of production there's harvesting which is lo- largely done by hand in a lot of these cases um, even in you know fully industrialised developed countries a lot of fruit picking is still done by hand so it is a more expensive uh, product partly because of the amount of labour involved um, but around the world, the reason that the FAO is looking into this around the world, malnourishment has been falling since the early twentieth, uh, since the early twenty-first century. Um, although apparently numbers are beginning to creep up again, but it's estimated about six hundred and ninety million people in the world have less food than they require in order to stay healthy. Now, most of the food that they're talking about here. The basic nutrition comes from staple crops, like wheat and rice and corn, things like potatoes, which again, are classified as an agricultural product rather than a horticultural product because of the scale at which they're grown. Um, They fall under the banner of agriculture, but these are often things that are easy to store with minimal processing and easy to transport from place to place. So we can actually move those things into areas where food is scarce and supply malnourished people with their basic macronutrients, which is your carbohydrates and your proteins, which is what the majority of the food we need is made up of. But as the saying goes, we can't live on bread alone and fruit and vegetables are an important part of the diet, not only because they provide some variation, but also because we need micronutrients and we need vitamins and there's other things we need to get out of food than just our carbs and our proteins. So the problem with fruit and vegetable supplies are that unlike grains, they don't store very well and they don't transport very well. They get damaged by transport and handling. Um, And about 70% of food grown in Australia is exported. But most of the fruit and vegetables grown in Australia are eaten by Australians. It just doesn't go anywhere Mm. unless it's been processed in some way. You know, turned into wine for example or put in a can and sold as a different kind of product but the fresh fruit and veg just doesn't go anywhere because a it doesn't transport very well and b australia's really far away from everywhere else um yeah, yeah.
1: and you try and ship it like across the world and it could get stuck in the suez canal or well, something like that
0: that that would be that would be your worst nightmare wouldn't it um, so Because of these problems with transport and storage, about half the fruit and vegetables grown in the world never make it to customers, which is one of the things the FAO is trying to change. So rather than growing more of these fruit and vegetable products, we could find ways of delivering the food in a better way. Because basically if food gets wasted, it's already been paid for it. So it costs just as much to produce say a kilo of tomatoes that ends up on the ground and not get eaten as it does to produce a kilo of tomatoes that someone actually takes home and eats. Um, And and that's one of the big problems with these fresh uh, products. Now this is obviously an area where science and engineering can help. So for example plant breeders could breed new varieties of fruit and vegetables that have better transport capability or they have a longer shelf life or they harvest over a longer period
1: because who doesn't love a hard tomato
0: well i mean this is one of the things one of the successes of plant breeding in the sort of mid 20th century was breeding these super hard tomatoes that didn't get squashed in transport and then you know after 20 years of getting sick of them they sort of realized that nobody wanted to eat a super hard tomato Just because it wasn't squashed didn't mean it didn't taste terrible. So (laughs) there there are issues with that, but I think sort of looking at things like, you know, even at the plant end, the growing end, um, you know, if you've got got a, a crop that produces all of its fruit all at once, obviously that's a much harder crop to deal with than if you've got something that produces fruit over a long period over the year, for example. So there's those sorts of things that plant breeders could definitely... Um, look into Um, and obviously you know you've got engineers they could design better systems for harvesting and transport that damage the produce less than the current methods. I mean a lot of picking involves pulling things off a plant and throwing them into a big wooden box which obviously is not a great way to avoid damage to to the fruit and veg. So that could result in less waste during the production cycles as well. One of the other things that they're focusing on is education because what they want to do is teach people everywhere all around the world the basics of plant science and horticultural science so they can actually grow their own food or some of their own food closer to where they live and then they don't need to transport the stuff as far as, you know, they don't need to Put it on trucks and ship it all around the place so that's one aspect the other aspect is if people are educated about the basics of of plant growth they might actually be able to be educated about different fruit and vegetable options that they could grow more easily where they are so rather than people eating uh, all the same thing regardless of where they live people in different places could actually grow different crops and different fruit and veg that are better suited to where they live. And that might be a way to improve their intake of fruit and vegetables if they start mm. eating different things. And obviously that that sort of cultural level change is a lot harder to, to bring about without, um, you know, people people have all sorts of reasons for eating what they eat and not all of them are, uh, are logical or, or, you know, um, based on um, logical thinking, I suppose. Mm. Um, now, I guess if you are wondering about the difference between a fruit and a vegetable, and I'm sure some people, you know, uh, are sort of going, well, what's the difference between a fruit and a vegetable? Now, the science of botany says one thing, uh, the kitchen staff will say something completely different on this point. So, in botanical terms, so the scientific thinking is that a fruit is any part of a plant that contains a seed. So, Yes, a tomato is a fruit. A pumpkin is a fruit. A cucumber is a fruit. A fruit. An eggplant is a fruit. A zucchini is a fruit. But right. in cu- in culinary terms, it tends to be something sweet that can usually be eaten without cooking. And I think,
1: yeah, I was I was going to ask though, because um, I've heard this before. This claim is the botanical definition of of fruit. Yeah what is the botanical definition of vegetable
0: so a vegetable is basically when you eat any part of the plant that isn't the fruit ah so you know if you think about it, you eat the leaves of a lettuce or you eat the stem of a broccoli or uh, but you know but by that definition rhubarb is a vegetable i would always go with what the kitchen staff say than what the scientists say on if if i'm if i'm ordering food as the saying goes uh, knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. That's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And if you would like to tune in next week, Chris, Stu and Claire will get Locked
1: Locked in
0: science. Science!
1: listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.